happy 2021, everybody. The year that was supposed to change everything. Um, uh, so far it's changed nothing, but I'm waiting. Gerard, are you, are you rested? Did you work hard over our, our two week, um, what do we call it? Sabbatical our our little break. How was your, how was your new year? Well, first of all, my friend, happy new year. Good to hear your voice. Too. I spent my time doing three things. Uh, Spending time with the family, reading uh, articles, books, things that have nothing to do with what we talk about. Yes. The best. And watching bowl games. So it was pretty restful for me. And I returned to the office yesterday and I said, you know what? It's time for us to get back to our lovely conversation that we have with people weekly. So missed that part. and glad to be back on the, uh, yeah. the, side of the fence for it. I am with you. It was a, it was, this is um something I, we don't always look forward to going back to work, but this doesn't feel like work. So, and exactly. I think that um it's, it's, you know, we've got some, some great guests lined up for 2021 and today's guest, Eva Moskowitz is absolutely no, no exception. Um, now Gerard, pretty quick before we, before we get into our stories of the week, and I know you're going to talk about this, but you know, you had written a pretty compelling piece on why one of the candidates for um, Secretary of Education, Lily Garcia, should win, but but it did not go that way. Um, but I'm I'm going to be really curious to hear how you are feeling. So maybe we should we should have you start to talk with your story of the week before I get yapping. No, absolutely. So for those who are unfamiliar with what we're discussing. I wrote an op-ed uh, saying why Biden should pick uh, Lily, who uh, is former president of NEA. And I lay out a case as to why she would be a pick that made sense for his agenda. I also noticed someone who supports parental choice. Uh, she's not going to do well on the issues I like, but there are bigger things at play. But with anything, it's 50-50. Uh, he picked uh, Miguel Cardona, who is the state chief in Connecticut, who is equally a good pick. And so that's why I decided to pick up a story from U.S. News and World Report by Lauren Camara. And the title is Miguel Cardona, Biden's pick for education secretary, stares down a long to-do list. And when we say long to-do list, I decided to actually look at it. So what he's going to have to deal with is, first of all, reopening schools um, in this pandemic, something Biden said he wanted to do in the first 100 days, at least address it in the first 100 days. So here are the issues that the uh, possible Secretary of Education will have to address. Reducing discipline of Black and Latino students and students with disabilities, protecting the rights of transgender students and the use of bathrooms of their choice, Title IX rules set up by Trump, police presence in schools, ways to better integrate schools and funnel resources to areas severely impacted by redlining, State chiefs and others want flexibility regarding testing and accountability as it relates to Every Student Succeeds Act, triple funding for Title I and IDEA, and that's just K-12. When we look at higher yeah. education, cancellation of some student uh, loan debt, making community college free, restating regulations for for-profit colleges, and it goes on and on. But Lauren makes a couple of good points. One, he has spent most of his career in the classroom, in administration, and now state chief. He's really been outside of state level and national level policymaking for most of his career. And I think that's actually a benefit. He's going to bring to this position more classroom experience than all 11 previous secretaries combined. 
And when you look at the fact that he will join, you know, Arnie Duncan and Rod Page as someone with district level experience, that's going to be helpful. He's also going to bring in state chief experience, as did uh, John King. Also, one, you know, at least John King, one of his parents is Puerto Rican. He comes from a Puerto Rican background, first in his family to go to college. So there are a lot of uh, boxes that it will check. And I don't say that in a pejorative way. I say it in a leadership way that he's hitting a lot of boxes that people need. So I'm glad to see that Biden moved forward with someone who has classroom experience, as he said. You know, we'll see what happens when uh, it's time to go through the confirmation hearing. But uh, this is what we live for, to see the what what ifs and what wills. Yeah, I have to say that despite your excellent article, um, I was I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty happy with this pick. Um, I am. Um, yeah, I, I've had some involvement with with folks who lead teachers unions and um, and it can be a tough relationship, uh, especially for those of us, as as you have you well said, for those of us who really support parent opportunities and, and parent choice. Um I just ima- try to imagine, Gerard, what it must have felt like to get that phone call. Because, man, when you go through that list, not only is it like on that list, you know, as we knew would be, um, lots of undoing of things that were done in the mm-hmm. past four years. In addition to all of these new things on which this secretary will be charged with moving. And as we all know, you know, only only so much can really be done at the federal level. <laughs> it's a, it is a long list. There's a part of me that's thinking, man, if I were him, I wonder if I would just would have had second thoughts <laughs> getting that phone call like, whew. Sounds like a lot of work, but, um, but I am curious to know, I want to know your take on one of these charges, uh, something that we've talked about and that I'm, I'm particularly concerned with right now is as states ask for flexibility with regard to testing and accountability and ESSA, um, do you have, you want to make a prediction about where, uh, the new secretary will land? I'd say he will weigh in and say, hold harmless for the, 2021 academic school year, 2122. And so at some part, it's a year and a half because, you know, he's inheriting what uh, Secretary DeVos put in place. But I think under his leadership, at least one year, hold harmless. Number two, I think they're going to find race to the top type money or a different fund to fund different innovations to help support uh, the learning loss gap. And I think he can do something unique by tapping into what I would call an uh, interagency approach, tapping into funds in the Department of Commerce. Because, again, there are some students who are going to go directly into the workforce. Don't rely just on DOE. There's money in the Department of Corrections for students who are uh, what I call juvenile justice involved youth. There are other interagency ways to do it, but that's my take for right now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that that's really, um, really great insight, Gerard. So, and we should also mention, as you said, you know, um, that we we might see race to the top, like, uh, programs. We should also mention that, you know, uh, the Congress just recently passed a new relief bill, which means that, and I'm, I'm particularly heartened by the fact that governor's going to get some more money. We've got another education stabilization fund coming. Uh, hopefully this will offset some of the pretty deep budget cuts that I think a lot of States were going to have to think about making, um, when it comes to education. Also, that point slightly related to to my story of the week, which is out of Indiana. Gerard, did you know that I am a Hoosier or I was? 
I graduated. I can, I can tell you every maybe 12 shows, I'll learn something totally new about you that I did not know. <laughs> yeah, but we learned, we learned a new place that you lived every show. So I'll, <laughs> yeah. That's but true. No, I had, my undergrad degree is from the great Indiana University, a place near and dear to my heart. I haven't been back to Bloomington in a while, but man, one of the most beautiful places in this country for my money. Um, but so I was, I was happy to see this story out of Indiana from the center square. And the, the title is, Report says teachers make up only 43% of K-12 education employees in Indiana. So let's let's say that again. Teachers make up only 43% of K-12 education employees in Indiana. So, of course, mm-hmm. my brain, like many people who study these issues, immediately went to, oh, this has got to be some lumbering bureaucracy. And in fact, that's not what this report finds. Before I tell you what it found, though, I think that it's important to note this report. It's it's pretty cool. So Governor Holcomb commissioned this because, you know, teachers in Indiana start, starting salary is low. It is not even $35,000. And so, of course, the unions are saying, listen, we really need to to raise the pay. I would get behind that, getting to the point that we really need to attract, you know, uh, strong candidates to the profession of teaching. But Governor Holcomb did something that that I think was right. And he said, well, okay, before we before we talk about that, you know, this state spends more than more than 50% of the state budget goes to education. So let's figure out where the money's going. And, you know, if we want to raise teacher salaries, how do we get there other than just throwing more money at the problem that, in fact, money that we don't have, especially in the, in the current moment. And so what this report finds is that actually um, most of the money in Indiana is going not to central offices, and of course, as I just said, not to teachers, but to support staff. So what do we mean mm-hmm. by staff? We mean social workers and nurses and school and janitors. And so, you know, you read that and I think, man, these people are essential though, right? I mean, we're not talking about just, you know, padding schools with folks who aren't doing anything. We need paraprofessionals in our schools. Teachers need mentors and coaches. We need um, folks who are going to help make sure that the the school is a safe and clean and, and welcoming learning environment. So all of these positions are, are really quite crucial. But, you know, it, to the question, do we need so many, especially in an environment of constrained not limitless resources. Um, so I think, you know, there's some recommendations that come out of this. I mean, in, it seems to be that the biggest recommendation here that the state is thinking is we need to look into why we have so many support staff. Maybe maybe class sizes are too small. Maybe some class sizes could be bigger, et, et cetera. There are, I think, a number of different ways you could cut this cookie. But one of the things that came to my mind, I think goes to the point that you were just making about interagency cooperation. And, you know, the longstanding question about Um, can schools be responsible for absolutely everything? And so we need social workers in school. Absolutely. We need mental health counselors and others in schools. Absolutely. But where is that money coming from? And should it necessarily just be, you know, education dollars, school responsibility, as well as um, how much autonomy should we ensure that schools have at the district level, maybe even I would venture to say at the school level, not just the district level, especially if it's Mm -hmm. a big district, to yep. figure out 
you know, like, okay, what flexibilities do I have to determine? Maybe I need to prepare a paraprofessional in this room, but not that room. Maybe, maybe the students in this class could, would do great if there were 40 kids in a class, but boy, oh boy, I know that there's some students that need eight. So to me, this is um, number one, just an interesting way to gather information and think about the problem. Number two, it surprised me. Uh, like I said, my gut was like, must be that bloated central office in every district. Um, and I think more states should take this approach. And then we can maybe begin to have really honest conversations about what we need in school and what kind of money that's going to take. So highly recommend this article. And I would follow up with saying, if you think that article is interesting, which it is, it reminds me of some of the research of Dr. Ben Scafferty who's a professor of yes. economics and education yeah. at Kennesaw State. He published uh, with Ed Choice a report called The Staffing Surge. And yep. in there, he makes the case very similar to this report that when you think like I did naturally, and it sounds like you did, it must be going to central office or some other place. And Ben's like, no, it's with staff. And similar to what you, you mentioned, uh, yet we need staff, but the question is, but how much and what's the return on investment? And so when my friends say, for example, even with uh, you know, the nominee for Ed Secretary, there's going to be a big push to triple funding for Title I and for IDEA. And someone will say, you know what, we should pay teachers more money. Those decisions are made at the local school level and uh, or at the local district level and then the local school level. So there's a lot into this. But, yes, the staffing surge is larger than we think. And again, we talk education is always revenue, not enough time on expenditures. So, yeah. And thanks for reminding us about the ever important return on investment because it's unclear how we understand that in situations like these. Yep. All right, Gerard. Well, maybe our next guest can answer a question like that. I don't know if we if we remember to pose it to her. But coming up right after this, we are going to be talking to the founder and CEO of Success Academies. I think many of our listeners will just will know who she is right off the bat. We're going to yep. be speaking with. Eva Moskowitz, coming up. Learning Curve listeners, we are back with someone who probably needs very little introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, today, our guest is Eva Moskowitz. She is the founder and chief executive officer of Success Academy Charter Schools, a network of 47, wow, 47 schools enrolling 20,000 K-12 students. Eve's experience as a teacher, a college professor, an elected official, chair of the New York City Council's Education Committee, and a public school parent make her uniquely qualified to effectively lead the organization in establishing high-performing schools and pioneering for educational excellence. She holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Pennsylvania, a PhD in American history, which we're going to talk about, from Johns Hopkins, and a doctor of humane letters from Tufts right here in our backyard. Eva Moskowitz, thanks for being with us today on The Learning Curve. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to engage in a dialogue. Yeah, and I think our listeners are going to be really excited, too. We've, of course, talked about the success of Success Academies um, here on The Learning Curve. We've also, I remember in the very recent past, uh, a story out of New York City about about you all being blocked from, from playing fields. So maybe we'll get into that. But 
But before we do, (laughs) before we do, I would love to ask you um, to let our listeners know a little bit just about you. A lot of people probably don't know that you have a doctorate in American history. Um, And that's you've taken a rather unorthodox path to becoming a charter school founder and CEO. Um, So can you talk a little bit about how you got here and maybe with a bent towards how your grounding in the liberal arts has influenced you as an educator and and influenced your work at success? Sure. Well, I think there are sort of two pathways that uh, have been very kind of influential. I mean, one is my experience growing up as a child in New York City, in Harlem, where frankly, when I was growing up in the late 60s and 70s, um, the district schools, frankly, were not very good. Uh, and, you know, that experience of struggling to get a really good education, um, which was not being provided, and this, of course, is before parent choice, the only school you could go to is your neighborhood assigned school. So unless you were going to move to the suburbs, if you could afford it, or to move to a more affluent area or uh, afford independent or parochial schools, you were kind of stuck with whatever was offered uh, your parents. Um, And, you know, in Harlem at the time, many of the schools, frankly, were quite poor. District 5 was known as one of the most corrupt uh, school districts at the time. And unfortunately, there was very little learning that went on. You know, I was ultimately able to um, go on and, you know, get a good education. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have parents who kind of homeschooled me, if you will, before that concept existed. They, In other words, they sent me to school, but it was considered sort of free babysitting. And then I, my brother and I learned reading, writing, and arithmetic at home from six to nine o'clock, et cetera. But many of the kids I went to school with were not so lucky and ended up in some really difficult places. So that journey of getting a poor education, not having uh, any level of school choice, uh, ultimately uh, being able to get a good education uh, certainly um, influenced me. And then the type of education that we are offering at Success, to some extent, mirrors you know my own values around um, a true liberal arts education, which is both the humanities and rigorous mathematics and science education, but also one in which we valorize the whole child. And so the art, the music, the dance, the sports, the chess, the coding, the debate, all of these things are not, in my mind, extracurricular. They are co-curricular and very, very important to a child or a student's education. And so at Success Academy, we really try and provide uh, a holistic, rigorous education so that kids can go to uh, the college of their choice with financial aid. I think that um, many of our listeners will will recognize sort of a tension in what you're saying between between what you're saying about providing 
those extracurriculars aren't extra. They're, they should be part of the school day. Some of us might say it's things that um, more privileged children who either attend high-performing suburban schools, not always suburban, but many of them are, and, and or private schools sort of take um, for granted. And that tension between that and traditional perceptions of charter schools, again, perceptions, so not necessarily truth, but that are often seen as, you know, only focusing on core subjects and test results and, and things like that. I'd like to ask you how that relates more specifically to the population of kids that you serve. Um, so, you know, you, you talk about your background growing up and it parts, it sounds like um, your parents must have had some degree of social capital to be able to, to homeschool you or to, or to see. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, they were at teachers and educators themselves. There you so, go. Yeah. Which, which is, which is a huge deal. Can you talk about, um, you know, when, when families choose you, and I think that's a really important way of putting it because they, they choose you. When families choose you, um, what are their reasons? What are their perceptions of success? And, and, and what are they, um, what are parents able to bring in terms of, you know, their own level of education or their own ability to sort of navigate um, the system like your parents were able to? Yeah, I mean, the, the beauty of the charter is that it doesn't require much navigation, meaning it's a random lottery. We at Success do not choose our students. Our students and families choose us. So it's actually simpler to, um, quote, unquote, enroll in a charter than it is uh, to enroll your kid in a district a kindergarten, a kindergarten class in, in the district because you just fill out, you know, a form digitally with your name, your child's date of birth, and then it goes into a lottery, and uh, that's kind of it. But in answer to your question about what parents are looking for, you know, I think it's very varied, but I think there is tends to be a common thread in that um, most of our families come from neighborhoods where almost every school in their neighborhood is failing to teach children basic skills, reading, writing, mathematics. Um, often our families come from um, communities that um, are deeply segregated and um, where the schools are shockingly poor. And so what we're you know, what we're all about is we believe deeply that there is no problem with the children. There's a problem with a system that fails children regularly. And if you um, have super well-trained teachers and have a very joyous learning environment and uh, you invest deeply in the so-called specials, art, music, sports, um, and you create a highly motivating, joyous environment for kids and one which is very responsive to parents, um, you can achieve extraordinary things with children, not only academically, but our kids are winning chess champions and debate tournaments and uh, having essays published in literary magazines and the so list cool. of kind of accomplishments go on and on. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's really amazing stuff to read about what what some of your kids are doing, and there and there are 
many of them. So you you mentioned um, a couple things here. You've mentioned highly trained teachers, a joyous learning environment, and of course, already as we've talked about a little bit, these extracurriculars that are in fact not extra. But those those, as you say, help to drive towards the outstanding result that success has had. But you know, you guys receive and rightly so a lot of attention for really there's there's a drastic difference between what um, what you and your your teachers are able to help students achieve and and what they're seeing results that are being seen in surrounding schools. Sometimes I would venture to guess maybe even in the same building as yours, right? Because in New York, I yeah, know there's a lot of correct. sharing sharing of space. Um, can you talk any more about some of the bigger picture reasons? I mean, you know, here we sit in Boston in the home to some very, very successful charter schools. But that said, even in places with great authorizing and stuff like that, charter schools aren't always successful. What else is part of the, the secret sauce when it comes down to really helping kids achieve academically? Well, I think you're right that, that a charter doesn't necessarily mean you will be great. It gives you the freedom to be great, but you still have to uh, put in the hard work and the ingenuity, and it's quite challenging uh, to be really good at schooling. I've been doing this now for 15 years uh, with 20,000 students, and I still find it extraordinarily challenging, particularly in the midst of a pandemic, uh, making it uh, uh, additionally sort of um, uh, challenging. But I think the secret sauce is not one thing, but I think it's it's a, uh, a series of things. So first, we have extraordinary attention to the learning environment. We, we believe that if the learning environment is not calm and organized and safe um, and supportive, <laughs> of um, children and students, you can't, you can't have high levels of learning. Um, you can't have high levels of learning on chaos uh, where fights are breaking out uh, and so forth. And so we put extraordinary attention into um, kind of the tone of the building. We want it to be highly, highly respectful of um, students and children. We want children to be respectful of one another. Uh, we just want it to be very calm and joyful and respectful. I would say a second um, source of our success is the level of rigor. Um, we find that our learning is more ambitious than at many other schools just because our bar is very, very high. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, students read, starting in kindergarten, a poem a day. If you read a poem a day for 13 years, you're going to appreciate language um, more so than if you've only read a dozen poems over the 13 years. Um, we find uh, through our project-based learning in elementary and middle school that our kids are really passionate about history because it's, you know, they're getting their hands dirty, so to speak, um, in elementary building uh, museums, uh, doing research projects, uh, et cetera. And so I would argue that the questions that we pose to students and the rigor of those questions account for some of our high levels of learning. I would also say our teacher training, we do 13 weeks 
of teacher training every single year. We Mm -hmm. really, really invest in the adults so that they are um, prepared uh, and quite knowledgeable and agile in order, you know, teaching is hard. It's really, really physically hard. hard. It's mentally draining. Um, It's also exhilarating. Um, uh, You're in the business of sort of um, supporting human potential. Uh, And so it is exhilarating, but it's hard, hard work. And we really try and provide uh, maximum support uh, to teachers in every conceivable way, including training. And I would argue that that accounts for uh, some of our success. That's enormous. As somebody who spent more than a decade in the teacher training space, it's I think it, you've put your finger on something so special because it's very rare that teachers re- receive that kind of support. 13 weeks is, is congratulations to you. Um, I have to, because the word came up, <laughs> it wasn't on our, it wasn't on the list of things that we asked you to think about, but, but much has been written about success is success in, in helping students uh, during the pandemic and some of the really tough decisions that you all had to make in in March, especially when New York was the epicenter of of the pandemic. Could you talk briefly about how you pivoted and and what learning, just in brief, looks like for your kids right now? Yeah, well, it's it's really been tough. I think uh, in all my years doing this, this uh, last year and this year has been the absolute hardest year. You know, we had uh, 25,000 deaths in New York uh, over a very short period of time. And obviously, we're still in the midst of the second wave. And so I made, I had been following this from Wuhan uh, when the World Health Organization said it wasn't a pandemic. And I said to myself, it sounds awfully like a pandemic to me, I don't know much about these things. Um, But watching that unfold, I started reading up on epidemiology and trying to figure out what was, you know, coming. And it seemed to me a question of not if, but when. I made the decision in uh, March when New York City and New York State was saying they're never going to close the school it seemed to me that flattening the curve was of the utmost uh, urgency. So we shut down and we stood up what we call remote learning 1.0. It was really, really challenging, um, but uh, we, we did it. And then over the summer in between March and when we opened, which was late August, we made various, uh, we did various scenario planning. Uh, We hope to open hybrid, uh, but if we couldn't for any reason, we invested deeply in remote. Uh, We call it remote 2.0. And remote 2.0 is really like real school. We are teaching all our literacy components, all of our math components. We're just doing it on the Zoom. And it's a little strange uh, to give all your kindergartners an email address and have them mute and unmute themselves, go into breakout rooms, uh, use their counting jars and whiteboards. Um, But we've always had a can-do attitude at success, and we didn't think it was fair to the children to simply throw up our hands and say, 
what are we supposed to do? There's a pandemic. So we rolled up our sleeves and we said, we're going to do this as well as humanly possible. We had a lot of sort of trial and error, had to change the schedule a few times because it didn't quite work. Um, But we are now kind of in the groove and there is learning going on. The kids who are taking art, we are even doing music and choir over the Zoom, believe it or not. Uh, All of our kids have a soccer ball and the soccer coaches are doing footwork with the kids. And so it's really like real school. Happy New Year, Eva. This is Gerard. Happy New Year to you. So here's the question that comes to mind for me, uh, given where you are and given the, the politics of the day. We have a new nominee for U.S. Secretary of Education. And if mm-hmm. confirmed, um, he's walking into a very different DOE than Betsy DeVos, uh, secretary uh, four years ago. Given that America's NAEP, uh, TIMS, PISA scores have stagnated for a decade and achievement gaps are wide and in some cases even wider, how would you like to see the new secretary proceed in this area? Well, I, I think there are sort of an order of operations. I mean, this if we were not in the middle of pandemic, there would mm-hmm. be many, many issues that I'd like to see tackled. But I do think we need to get the schools um, back open, and that's going to depend on the vaccination rollout. We need to make sure that uh, teachers are vaccinated, and obviously, ultimately, the entire population, including children. But I am very, very worried about the basic learning loss. I mean, in New York City, we have about 700,000 kids not going to school. They're not remote. There's no school happening. And that, uh, as you mentioned, we already had gross educational inequity, uh, mostly impacting black and brown kids. That is just going to be magnified. But, you know, I think the longer term play here has to be um, improving dramatically the quality, uh, innovating, including expanding uh, parent choice and school choice. You mentioned 700,000 students. And for me, you, Carr, and others in our world, we know how large New York City school system is, in fact, the largest in the country. But for those who are listening, just to think, 700,000 students that's larger than a number of cities uh, in the country. And right. when you link that to poverty and to other dynamics, I mean, what we're seeing going on is going to have a ripple effect beyond just education. It's impacting families. It's impacting faith communities and others. So I'm glad you brought up the number. That's actually a good pivot to the next question. Among the most crucial responsibilities um, for school leaders is getting results. And it's also in recruiting and preparing and retaining high quality teachers and principals. Could you discuss Mm -hmm. how you and your team look for those kind of leaders? And once you find outstanding teachers and principals, you know, what do we need to do to get the kind of big academic gains for your students that we have seen for quite some time? Well, Gerard, as you undoubtedly know, there is a pretty significant teacher shortage in the country and actually COVID has made it worse because you've had a wave of retirements that have been expedited uh, given the fear and age and and all of that. 
And so, you know, um, and that has a disparate impact on communities. So if you look at, you know, where do the small number of certified math teachers go, they don't go in generally into the poorest communities, they go into the wealthy suburbs. And so you have the poorest communities um, left often with substitute teachers. I think we have to kind of bust that system wide open uh, and really look for talent more broadly. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion these days about what is the criteria for, you know, great teaching. Um, and, you know, I don't always find that the person who's gone to the ed school uh, is the most qualified person. So how do we think more broadly in this era of teacher shortage, particularly when you have our poorest communities not even having access uh, to the traditionally trained teachers, um, how do we make sure that we're thinking innovatively uh, about this uh, problem? Uh, and I'm very much in favor of various alternative uh, certification programs. Um, mm -hmm. We, you know, um, we had proposed one and the union sued and rejected it, et cetera. Um, but I, I think in this um, moment, I mean, it's been true for a while, but in this particular moment, we can't afford to go with the same old, same old. We have to think radically differently about resource allocation and how do we make sure that our most vulnerable kids get access to the highest um, quality of teaching uh, talent. Um, and then there's training. I mean, the notion that you're going to somehow get trained at a university for a practical job, I don't find that very, very compelling. You know, teaching is sort of a uh, in-the-moment activity. You have to have children in front of you to really know how to teach. And so the employer is actually in a better position to train than a theoretical uh, school um, but we're going to have to find somehow the resources because mm -hmm. it's hard to be both an employer and run a sort of school of education at the same time. Um, but, you know, we've got to really practically prepare our teachers to become expert instructors of reading, for example. They're not mm -hmm. learning that in school. So here's a question, and it's my last one, and it's more of a of a New Year type of question. Uh, there's an Eva or an Evan or an Escuela who's going to listen to this, and he or she, young in their career, if they're thinking about taking on a leadership position within the next uh, 10 years, what advice mm -hmm. would you give them today about leadership, knowing what you do now, versus what you would have said maybe 20 years ago when you were getting started? I'm not sure I can remember 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you get sort of older. But I would say that, um, you know, one of the things that I think young people don't take into account enough is um, it, I think it matters less, you know, what exactly you do than who you work for, meaning finding a mentor 
finding a boss or a leader who you can emulate and learn from is probably what's going to matter the most in terms of playing the long game. Because leadership is um, about impact and navigating skillfully all of the challenges that come uh, one's way at a velocity that can be, you know, fairly overwhelming. And being steady Eddie and knowing how to make judgments in that rapid fire context is hard to learn if you don't have a great mentor. And so finding great leaders to work for, I would say, is more important in your training and development than you might think. That's fantastic advice. And I'm just thinking as I was listening to you, Eva, that I received a, a, a very nice New Year's gift, which was a subscription to Masterclass from the New York Times. And I think that we should nominate you <laughs> to teach. I think those of us <laughs> at the ed space need, um, need somebody to, to talk more uh, about such things. And um, I, I would vote for you. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> well, that's nice. yeah, we, we really appreciate you spending this time with us and, um, and wish the best to you and your family and the success community. We know, as you said, it's been an incredibly difficult year and, and it's still going to be, um, a long road ahead. So, um, so thank you so much well, and we'll keep you all in our thoughts. You. Thank yes. you very, very much for having me, um, as you know, uh, Kara and Gerard, I'm so passionate about educational inequality and having access to world-class education. And I would just conclude by saying, you know, our nation has a limited amount of time to get this right. Otherwise, we're going to lose a whole generation of children. Uh, and that would be so sad in a nation that is um, you know, has so many resources, uh, both material and intellectual. And so it is my greatest New Year's hope that we will do better on the education front than we've done in the past. Agreed. And organizations like yours are proof that, that we can do it. So thank you. Happiest of New Year's. And we hope to have you on again. You. Take care. Good. Thank you so much. Gerard, we're going to continue, of course, a very important trend from 2020, which is our tweet of the week. This one, it's going to surprise you, Gerard. It is going to knock your socks off. This is this is from um, PR Newswire, and the tweet is: New international assessment results show widening gaps between top and bottom performing U.S. fourth and eighth graders. So. Like I said, super surprising, right? Um, we're talking here about the TIMS, the TIMS, the International Examination. It focuses on mathematics and science. I remember years ago when I was doing this for my doctorate, you know, it does this really cool thing where it sort of breaks down like if each U.S. state were a country where we performed, you can see these like horrible gaps between not only high and lower performing states, but high and low performing students. And of course, it all comes down to equity and access and all of these things that we spend a lot of time talking about here and that we just spoke about with, with Eva Moskowitz. But, you know, I long for the day, uh, I wonder if we'll ever have it together, 
where we get to say that, um, like somebody, you know, the U S has just rocked international results. <laughs> we like shot to the top or something, but, um, I don't know. I long for it. I'm not, I'm not hopeful given the way we're trending. Um, so it's worth a read. I think that international exams such as Tim's and PISA, um, really, really are important in, in helping us calibrate, what it is mm-hmm. we're doing for students and what we should be doing for students. And um, I'll, I'll pick up what our guest uh, just said in, in when we were speaking with Eva Moskowitz. And she noted that, you know, we, we really have limited time. We have limited time. And I, sp- I think very specifically about this COVID generation of students um, and, and what, what it's going to mean, especially for those who were starting off um, with, with, inadequate educational options to begin with. So a little bit of a depressing tweet of the week. Nonetheless, looking forward to a very happy 2021, Gerard, and a healthy 2020 run. But next week, we are going to be speaking with composer Ignat Salchenichin. But Gerard, I am looking forward to chatting with you again. And I hope you have a good week. Stay safe. Will do. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year, everyone. (laughs) 